This is a book club where you don't actually have to read the book. Sign me up. At the Bible Book Club, we read it to you. And this book can change your life. So can we be the first to say, Welcome to the club. When last we left off in chapter 20, Moses had come full circle. If you'll remember when he first started his mission back at Mount Sinai, way back in the beginning of Exodus, he met God in a burning bush and his only responsibility was to herd sheep. And that prepared him for this colossal journey that he would go on where he was herding the entire flock of Israel. So in in chapter 20, he is back at Mount Sinai where the presence of God has grown from the size of that bush into a dark thundering cloud that covers the entire mountain. His responsibility grew. No more little sheep. It's now two million people, Israelites. Mm -hmm. Then Moses, after many trips up and down that mountain, up and down again and getting frustrated with God, as you (laughs) recall, he had to receive the Ten Commandments. And we have two divisions. So we went through the commandments one through four. That's getting your relationship right with God. And then the commandments five through 10 talk about getting your relationship right with people. Right. And that theme is going to continue in a cool way through Exodus, which I never recognized before. So we're going to hit on that. In today's episode and the next one, we have a three chapter break from our Moses narrative. Let me repeat that. We have been on this kind of narrative story of Moses. And all of a sudden, we're going to take a three chapter break. And in that break, Moses is going to stop trekking up and down the mountain. And instead, he's going to lay out the detail of all these laws. Many people feel that these laws, which are called the Book of the Covenant, are an interruption to the story about Moses. And so they skip them. For the Israelites, however, these words from God were the beginning of their relationship with him. They would finally know what God wants them to do, how to love him, and how to love others. And just as we pour over the New Testament today, they devoured these long-awaited instructions that would help govern them into becoming the great nation God had promised to Abraham. Yeah, and can I tell you something that (laughs) your husband, Susan, actually taught me oh, is wow. that all scripture is important Yes, because we at one point were talking about, should we read these genealogies or is it just repetitive? Do we really have to do this? And I, I was really hoping that he would say, yes, go ahead and, and skip, skip them. them. <laughs> and in the wise sage way that Mark Merrill is, he said, no, all scripture is important. And so I would remind everybody yes. that even if they wanted to skip these because the scholars said to, don't skip them because they're important and they all point towards Jesus, which is the point of the gospel. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because today we are going to read some laws that we're, are not probably going to sit well with us, but I'm going to try to explain what culturally they're there the way they are and how they transcend then to today. Yeah, so, because I do think that's one of the hard things about reading the Old mm-hmm. Testament, One of for me anyway, mm-hmm. is it just seems like so strange and foreign and right. why would God make them do these things? And it just makes me question. But we also know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and that they're not under the authority of this law anymore. And so 
let's, I'm going to put this here and I was going to talk about this later, but let me talk about it right now because you brought up, let's climb into just the setting of where they are. They are a camp of 2 million people who came out from a very corrupt culture, Egypt. And they weren't in that corrupt culture for a year or a decade, 400 years. So it has infiltrated generation after generation to the point that those generations can't remember what it would have been like to live in Abraham's family. And so God is going to try to systematically undo everything that they have inherently learned by watching for generations. Right. And living so in that culture. He's going to start with where they are. And where they are is with a lot of bad conceptions. And we went through this when we, we adopted our older kids. They had grown up with a lot of bad misconceptions. And it's very hard to unravel that and bring sense into right living. And so I totally get what God was trying to do. Um, but he had to start with where they are. So that's all that's I'll say a for right sweet, now. But. That's a sweet image, too, because that's exactly what God does for you. Exactly. He meets you where you are. Right. So if you're like the woman who they brought to Jesus who had committed adultery, and if that's the life that you're living in right now, Mm -hmm. God's going to meet you where you are. He's not condemning you. Jesus didn't condemn her. He bent down and he said, Mm -hmm. wrote in the sand and he said, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And then they all left. They didn't stone her. God is going to meet you wherever you are. And he's going to move you from where you are today into the person that he wants you to be. The other thing I'll explain is that, remember, their culture was not our culture. And so there weren't prisons and things that we have now that would be better ways of addressing some of the humanitarian problems. So just, we'll get to all this in a sec, but just know that let's, when you hear these words, crawl into where they were at the time. Um, A camp without rules, without laws, without policemen, without hospitals, without culture, and they're kind of starting over. So, And it's probably not even the same culture that exists in Egypt even today. No, 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 no. Or Israel. No, yeah. Okay. Now within Exodus, there are three concepts that dominate and God is going to constantly remind the Israelites of all three throughout the entire book. They are redemption, which we covered in chapters one through 19, worship and the law. Within the law, our focus today, God gave Israel three types of laws. One, the Ten Commandments, which were the moral laws, how to live as an individual. We covered that in Exodus 20. Then the Book of the Covenant, which are the civil laws, how to live as a nation, which we are going to cover today in verses 20, 22 through 23, 33. And then the ceremonial laws, how to live spiritually, which we will cover in Exodus 25 through 40. Today, we're going to move from the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, to the civil laws in in the book of the covenant, which is God's instructions on how Israel should live as a nation. Remember, this is God's instructions of how they should live, not individually, but as a nation. These laws had a special purpose to transform how people live in whatever type of culture they found themselves. No culture or country is flawless. It is always subject to the nature of the people who live in it. So he started with them individually to address their nature in the commandments. 
Now we're moving on to how they should live as a nation. As we read these laws, do not think that God is endorsing every practice. Israel is very much like the neighboring cultures, and there were developmental and economic reasons for some of these practices. Societies developed more humanitarian solutions, I mentioned this, as they advanced, settled, and could, for example, build prisons, corporately pay for policemen, etc. What we should focus on when reading these laws is how God is teaching the Israelites to further protect the rights and dignity of those who might be vulnerable, such as orphans. So he's laying out the laws to protect people, to raise the morality of them. God was calling his people to a higher standard of love and obedience than the other cultures around them. Obedience to the law was required, not just so that people would have something to do, but so that they would develop a right relationship with God and with others. There was a vertical with God and horizontal with others dimension to their obedience. Yet that he's got a lot of laws about, you know, vertically being obedient to God and then horizontally obedience in regard to others. Well, you know, what is striking me as you're saying this is that's kind of Jesus's men- oh, message. Oh, don't even go there yet. I'm going to quote that oh, first. Sorry. Strike that buck. No, that's so good, though, <laughs> that you're you're going right where I'm going to go. Okay. So there was a vertical and horizontal dimension to the relationships that developed because of their obedience to the law. And we can see the same vertical and horizontal dimension to the law summed up by Jesus himself in the New Testament. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Vertical. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, this is Jesus saying this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And here we have that law, the book of the covenant hanging on those two commandments that Jesus is going to hundreds of years later espouse. And I think it's not a coincidence that whenever Jesus's parents were looking for him, he could be found studying the law inside the temple. So he knew what those laws were. And he understood them, though, in the way they were intended instead of the way that the Pharisees and other leaders at the time had interpreted them to be these very literal things yes. that were putting uh, unnecessary handcuffs on people instead of just, this is all, all it boils down to is yes. love God, love people. Exactly. You guys missed the point. Exactly. Great point. So in short, love God, vertical relationship, love others, horizontal relationship. The specifics of the laws we are about to read may have changed. We don't have some of these anymore. But the nature of the purpose behind the laws has not changed. Love God, love others. So the book of the covenant that we're about to cover, remember this insert in the narrative, (laughs) taking a break, covers laws that include laws about worship, slavery, physical abuse, and property. Those are the ones we're going to cover today. Now, when we left Moses in the last episode, he was once again on his way up the mountain where God began a new discussion with him about these laws. So the whole time we're reading these, just picture Moses up on the mountain, taking it all in, perhaps writing it in shorthand on those tablets or something. Who knows what he was doing, how he's keeping all this in his head. All right. Laws about worship. Chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. 
So remember, God prefaced the Ten Commandments with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. But this time, he prefaces the Book of the Covenant with the most recent miracle, the reminder of his terrifying meeting with them on the mountain where he spoke from heaven. God wants Israel to remember who he is. And that's why he inserts these reminders all the time. Remember me, the God of Egypt. Remember me, the God who spoke from heaven. Point. Here's the point. Like the Israelites, we need to remember every minute of every day just who God is. It will change how we approach him. It will change how we pray and worship him. And if you haven't been a believer for long or you haven't heard of this in your church, there is this ACTS, A-C-T-S prayer acronym. And we're going to put a printable of it in the in the um, show notes because if you've never seen it, it's a great way to pray. It will change the way you pray because the first part of praying this way is the A in A-C-T-S and it is adoration. It's simply saying, God, you are awesome. God, you are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the great healer, the great provider. It's filling in. And if you pray, start your prayers with a couple minutes of adoration, it will change the three remaining, which are confession, because it sets God in the right place of reminding yourself who he is as you start your day. This is who God is. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent. He is all things. And then you go into confession, God forgive me for a reminder of exactly who we are. <laughs> the sinners that we are. And that's also important because it's it so does important. say in the Bible that if you have unconfessed sin, that God literally can't even hear your prayers. Yes. yes. So it's important to confess. Then you go in the T, Thanksgiving, a reminder of all God done has done for you, the miracles he does, that the, the, they, they will amaze you. And then finally, you get to what we think prayer is, supplication. God, I pray for blank. And But if you don't go to supplication, the S, until you've adored, confessed, and thanks, your supplication is going to change, I promise you. You're not going to be praying for um, a car anymore. You're just not. (laughs) You're going to be praying for other things. So we'll put that in the show notes. That's a little aside. But God places these reminders to them in his words to them because he wants them to remember and he wants us to remember. All right, next, God is going to give a warning that reiterates the first and second commandment. Again, he's always planting and replanting these seeds in them. This is an obvious clue that these two laws from the 10 commandments are important to what is going to follow in the entire book of the covenant. He's tying it all back together. In other words, everything hinges on the first two commandments. Verse 23, do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. So that is a tongue twister if I've ever heard one. I know. Gods of gold, gods of gold, gods of gold. (laughs) So uh, have no other gods before me and do not make idols. Then God gives instructions for how to worship. Verse 24, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps or your private parts may be exposed. All right. Sounds really weird. But this is why he's saying this. You have to know the backstory. 
He is telling them worship is to be well thought out and reverent. And here's why he gives these specific things about, you know, the use of uncut stones and no steps, because it was to prevent cultic Canaanite temptations. The Canaanites had ceremonial practices that included sexual rituals. At this point, the Israelites are not wearing undergarments. And so by cutting stones and making steps, they would be stepping up and their private parts would be revealed. Later in Israel's history, stepped altars were used, but God instructs the priest to wear linen undergarments. So while it sounds stupid to us, there was a backstory about why he gave them these rules. Yeah, like God cares if you wear underwear or not. Yes, he does. Apparently he does. If you're serving on the altar. Now, God then turns his attention to laws about slavery, which we would call human trafficking today. Slavery is the exact same thing, and we just use different words. Well, why would God start the book of the covenant? with a lengthy discussion of slavery. You would think that murder would take precedence, kind of well, like, they you just know, came out of slavery. Exactly. And that's why slavery was important because the Israelites were coming out of decades of slavery themselves. Slavery was deeply rooted in their understanding of how a culture prospered. God had other ideas, but he knew that sometimes what we know is what we return to and trust. And this generation of Israelites only knew one lifestyle, that of a slave. The laws set out in the book of the covenant regarding slavery will not be comforting to us. Why did God not abolish slavery altogether is my question. But we must consider the context of the society, a camp that they were living in. There were no prisons. Therefore, if a man committed a crime, the consequence was to make amends to the victim of the crime by becoming their slave. Think of it as serving time in a home versus a prison. So are you saying that that back then slavery was considered something very different than what we think of it as today and what the Israelites were under in under Egyptian? No, it could have been very, it was very oppressive under Egypt, but God is going to apply a lot of laws here that we're going to read because he didn't want it to become like that. However, there had to be a, a, a punishment. There was no other alternative other than casting the criminal out of Israel and his family would starve. In other words, what are you going to do when somebody does a crime? There's no prison to put them in. So they would be they would have to serve the family that they, you know, did the crime against. Which was called slavery. It's like I, retribution. Exactly. It's like a home prison. You know, instead of going to prison and sitting in a jail cell for seven years, you're going to go live with that family and you're going to work for them for free for seven years. Yeah. And nobody's probably confused about this, but just to be clear, we oppose slavery and we think God does too. Slavery the way we think of it today. Today and the way the Egyptians did it. So there was no, also check this out, there was no welfare system. Therefore, if a man fell on hard times, he could sell himself or his children to provide for for his family. Now that sounds really harsh, but think about it. You're starving. You have five kids. What do you do? Um, You have have to sell yourself to work uh, for somebody else versus yourself. And remember, they're all in a camp. They're all trying to make ends meet. I don't know how they were doing it. You know, what were they doing? Some of them probably had sheep and herds and some of them maybe got some gold from other people and had to sell for stuff. They were trying to figure out their whole economic system in in a few months. So it, it wasn't easy. The focus of the laws for slavery then are the proper godly treatment of those Israelites who have fallen to the lowest rung 
rung of the social ladder and to provide a way for them to climb out of their situation and attain freedom. He's going to put rules on this slavery. And if you look at it that way, they will make sense for now. All right, continuing on as we learn more about the laws that pertain to how to love people in chapter 21. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if a servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Yikes. This is a difficult pill to swallow regarding the women and children and the tough decision if you can't leave without them. So two examples here. One, um, I commit a crime or I fall in poverty more often and I uh, and I become, I sell myself to be a slave for somebody. I, do, I have a wife. She obviously goes with me and my kids. When I I am freed. They go free. They stay with me. That's the easy. That's the easy one. Now, in the case of, let's say, I become a slave and I fall in love and I marry another slave, the woman belongs to the master. Thankfully, there are more limitations to come on this because we don't like the idea of the women and children, you know, always being owned by the master. But in fact, slavery will be discussed in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Jeremiah. And to offer some comfort, there will be limitations to the length of slavery added for women and children. And the limits, which I think this is cool, model creation and the fourth commandment regarding keeping the Sabbath. What's to come is that freedom is provided after six years of labor for men and women, not just the men. And in the seventh, they go free. So there is a time constraint there. Isn't that what they called the year of Jubilee? Okay, I'm getting to that. You're so good today. You're like jumping ahead of me. I don't mean to. In other books of the Bible, the seventh year is applied to women and the year of Jubilee will be introduced where all slaves are freed in the year of Jubilee. So again, God is going to kind of evolve these laws with the population and they just become more and more humane. Verse seven, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. All right. Among the Hebrews, the selling of children, and in this case, daughters, was rare. So just know that this was very rare, but occurred in cases of extreme poverty, like I mentioned before. At this point in the law, it does not seem that women went free after six years. However, Deuteronomy 15, 12 states that women sold this way could claim freedom at the end of six years. Now, many commentaries interpret this passage as laws addressing a woman who is sold with the intention of marriage. These laws then protected a woman's rights to have marital status for life, even if another wife is taken, family status for life, she is to be treated 
as a daughter if given to a son. If neither is agreeable, either marrying her, the father or the son, the buyer has two choices. She can be redeemed or sold to someone else, but not a foreigner. In other words, she's not to be sold out of the camp of Israel. Or she can go free and her family does not have to return the money paid for her. So a lot of mixed up in that verse from Moses that she read, but it covered a lot of ground pertaining to women. All right, next, Moses is going to cover laws about personal injury, or we would say today, physical abuse. First, laws about murder. Verse 12, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Okay, and then laws about assaults. In verse 16, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Ooh, I'd All like right. to show that one to my kids. I know, right? <laughs> All right, let's talk about the death penalty because there's a lot of death in these verses. This was the consequence for all the laws we just mentioned, intentional murder, attacking or cursing parents and kidnapping, unless the death was an accident, in which case they could flee to a safe place. And those safe places were created throughout the Old Testament. We'll read about those like, um, you know, oh gosh, I'm thinking what chapters? There's several. It is impressive to me that parents and family were so highly valued, but it is also extreme that the death penalty was the law for cursing parents. Yeah, that's really a now, lot. Whether you believe in capital punishment or not, remember the times there were no life imprisonment sentences here. And if someone was danger enough to, to not respect other people's life and were killing, the death penalty was the solution at the time. Well, and, you know, there are things that you can't convey from what is said in the Bible, probably. Like there's a lot right. not filled in. We don't know if they were respectful of their parents or not, but we know it was not acceptable at all. Yeah, at all. And perhaps, again, we see what the importance of this in that this whole thing is God teaching them in the book of covenant and the commandments to be obedient. So if parents didn't teach children from an early age obedience, how could they grow up and be obedient to God? Yeah. Verse 18, if people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die, but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. And this makes perfect sense because work was necessary to put food on the table. Therefore, if a person was injured, they must be compensated to provide for their survival. Yeah, and we kind of have something like that today, retribution for anything that you do. All right, verse 20. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result, but they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. This law is another that protects the slave. If a slave is struck and dies, the owner will be punished. If a slave is struck and recovers, it will be assumed it was necessary discipline. Yeah, and I think these are just hard things to talk about and think about. Yeah, it's really hard. Verse 22. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offense must be fined. Whatever the woman's husband demands at the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And this is a very well-known verse, verse in the Bible. Yes, 
And that's why there's a lot of commentary on this law. First, because it is unclear as to whether the phrase no serious injury refers to the mother or the child or to both. Yeah, I was thinking that as a, mm-hmm. as a I was If the law too. applies to both the mother and the child, then a premature baby, unless it was born in that day and age, very close to delivery date, would have had very little chance of surviving. Yeah, even babies that were born at full term had very little chance yeah, exactly. to survive back then. The implication then is that if the baby dies, that the law requires a more severe penalty than a fine. It's the death penalty. The penalty for serious injury is to be equal to the injury and includes the death penalty or life for life. Uh, the other reason for a lot of commentary is what you just mentioned. This is where the well-known phrase, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, originates. Continuing in verse 26, an owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Just another law that protects a slave if a slave is struck and maimed, even so much as loses a tooth, they go free. Well, that'll put restrictions on the masters. This sanction is designed so that the owner has plenty of reason to resist abuse to protect his financial investment in the slave. And these laws were quite different from other cultures, remember. So God is really setting up here. You're really not treating them as a slave. It's like a servant who's indentured a little bit. Yeah, but it's still bad. It's still bad. All right, verse 28. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had a habit of goring the owner and has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or woman the bull is to be stoned and its owner is to be put to death however if payment is demanded the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded the law also applies if the bull gores a son or daughter if the bull gores a male or female slave the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave and the bull is to be stoned to death (laughs) all I'm going to say about this is bulls must have been very dangerous. Well, they are dangerous. We have whole laws about it. All right. I'm thinking, is it the same thing that we kind of sort of have today? If a dog is uh, has a habit of biting, you kind yeah. of hold the owner responsible if it's happened multiple times? Totally, but we're going to have more on bulls. So all I can say is I wouldn't own one. All right, laws about property. Now, the first property loss due to gross negligence. In verse 33, if anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it is known that the bull had a habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. We have laws, two laws now about bulls. Just switch to sheep, people. Why have a bull? It's risky. (laughs) Okay, property loss due to theft. Chapter 22. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. I am not sure how they would enforce this. If one is stealing a sheep, it is most likely because they don't have a sheep. So how would they pay back four sheep? Just the math is wrong. This must be where slavery comes in. A person caught stealing a sheep would have to labor for six years to pay for the sheep if they didn't have four sheep to repay it with. Okay, verse two. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens, 
happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. This was fun to read the commentary. So curious thing, killing the intruder is only permissible at night. Definitely safer to steal in the daytime. (laughs) The commentaries explain that in the light of day, the intent of the thief would be visible, whether or not they carried a concealed weapon and intended to kill the homeowner. At night, that would be get, that would be difficult to ascertain, so you could just go ahead and kill them. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution, but if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. Yeah, so double if they haven't killed it and eaten it. Um, if they have nothing to pay, then that's where they become a slave. Is it because the assumption is if they're stealing it, they're stealing it because they don't have money to buy something to eat? Correct. Or, yeah, they're going to sell it to get money to buy something to eat. Uh, proper- but if they have nothing, how are they going to pay double? They don't have anything to I know, to exactly. And this is where they become a slave. We're getting in the weeds, but this is I just know. crazy. Property loss due to gross negligence. Verse 5. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. So because the damage here is material rather than personal injury, the penalty is material rather than the death penalty. Thank goodness. Okay, our last one. Property loss due to custodial theft or negligence. Verse 7. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of a legal possession of an ox, donkey, sheep, garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one else is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money Money paid for the hire covers the loss. So we kind of laugh at the detail of all these laws, like bring in the torn pieces of the animal as proof. Um, But this is how simple their life was. They just didn't have a lot. And so, you know, as neighbors, they were probably lending animals or saying, hey, can you watch my sheep for a while? I got to go visit my sister-in-law. I don't know. Yeah. The other day, my neighbor asked me to borrow some oil. That's like the closest (laughs) thing I can think of. So they had really, really specific things were happening. And that's why these laws were specific. And these are Trust laws between neighbors and friends, which were important to this new nation that depended on each other for survival. Remember, we're working on that vertical relationship and horizontal relationships, and God wants them to be 
unified in a way that makes them stand out among the other nations. God was calling his people to a higher standard of love and obedience. And the purpose of these laws was to help the Israelites develop their vertical and horizontal relationships. That's all. The vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with others. Something we're still supposed to be working on today. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.